it was really down to the fireman. He was the main man. Everything depended on him. It makes me in awe of what they could do there. Welcome to 100 Years, 100 Objects, stories from the collections of Lancaster City Museums. My name is Rachel Roberts, Collections Registrar at Lancaster City Museums. 2023 marks 100 years of our museums and collections, and we're celebrating by examining 100 intriguing objects that help tell the story of Lancaster, Morecambe and the surrounding area. This time on 100 Years, 100 Objects, we're putting the pieces of history together to discover an aspect of life on St George's Quay that was almost forgotten. We're looking at a small group of objects that were discarded by their makers and found by archaeologists around 250 years later. Today's objects are pottery sherds from the Lancaster Delftware Pothouse. We have chosen three sherds out of the thousands held in our collections. All of them came from a waste heap which was found as part of a series of archaeological digs starting in 2007 on the site of the Delftware Pothouse located on St George's Quay. As they came from the waste heap, they are most likely from products that didn't come out correctly and were discarded instead of being sent out for sale. But by sifting through these sherds, we can build up a fascinating picture of the range and quality of pottery that was being produced at the site. The three sherds we have chosen today are all under 25 centimetres across at their widest point, although there are some larger pieces in the collection. Two of them have designs in blue and white, which was the most common colour palette for pottery produced at the pothouse. One shows a piece of a garden with part of a rock, some small plants or bushes, and segmented stems reminiscent of bamboo. The other shows the head of a fish, who has a darker upper body and lighter underside, and has an almost cheeky, smiling expression on its face. The third piece is polychrome. It uses yellow, green, blue and brown on a white underglaze to depict a stylized flower. The stems swirl and cross one another and the leaves are represented by a series of lines and diamond shapes. We spoke to Barbara Blenkinship and Dr Matthew Hobson, Associate Director of Archaeology at Ward Larmstrong, who were both present at the excavation on the Delftware Pottery site and have recently produced a book on their findings to dig a little deeper. Matthew and Barbara started by telling us where the pothouse was, when it started and how it got forgotten about. The pottery was situated fairly near the quayside. Yeah, it's about uh, 300 metres west of where we are now in the Customs yeah. House building. The quayside was improved in 1750 and the pottery was built as a direct result of mm. that. The key was what stimulated the transatlantic demand for Delphware, which wasn't being made in the US. Prior to the improvements in, in the quayside, uh, the River Loon was not good for, for large seagoing vessels. And so the improvement of the quay, it gave the quayside access to the transatlantic markets and also the, the Irish clay which was being brought in uh, from Carrickfergus. Um, the pottery itself was forgotten about for a, a long time after the, the building got turned into tenements at the end of the 18th century. In the 1970s, a local historian discovered, going through insurance documents, that a, a pottery had been insured for, for a large amount of money. It was actually a researcher who was researching the Sun Alliance Insurance Company. She was a member of the English Ceramic Circle. And that triggered academic interest, but it wasn't until the Loonside East Redevelopment Project um, in 
the early 2000s that there was the opportunity to excavate. The main excavations took place in 2007. We revealed more or less the whole floor plan of the original pothouse building with a kiln to its rear, which was one of the best preserved Delphware kilns ever found in Britain, probably the best. The most important information came from this huge waste heap, which is around the east and southern sides of the building. And that's where we got a lot of information about the kiln furniture, which told us about the, the production practices and also the Delphware itself, which told us the, about the range of forms and the patterns. We were very fortunate to be able to find all that uh, enormous evidence because that part of the quayside had not been developed at that time. And that was the key thing. Once it had finished, if people had just gone in and dug everything up, would have lost all the evidence. One of the key things is is the kiln, you know, the level of preservation there, but also, you know, the international importance comes from the fact that the forms being produced were going out to the the colonies, they're going to the New World, to the Caribbean, and that's interesting for archaeologists who are working there now doing post-colonial reassessments of the sites and looking at the economy of the 18th century and connections. We still don't really have a good idea of, you know, what was the relative importance of Liverpool production versus Lancaster and how much the the slave trade influenced how how many vessels were, Mm. were going, but you could start to look at that in quantifying uh, the pottery um, from the New World. We asked them what other historical evidence there had been for the existence of the pottery before the archaeological digs began. Very little, unfortunately. Um, yeah. But we do have um, you know, these insurance documents which we've just mentioned, yes. which tell us that it was insured for £1,200 in 1755, and the stock in trade was insured for £400. Then people in the local library, the staff at the local library, started digging into the, the archives a little bit more, and then there was the discovery of the lease agreement between eight gentlemen and the trustees of Lancaster Keylands, which was signed on the 11th of January 1754. The principal shareholder was a gentleman called Beatbay. John Beatbay. John Beatbay. Yeah, and a couple of the under, other individuals, uh, partners in the pottery, were uh, listed as potters. Or they were all potters. worthies of Lancaster, who could see that it was going to be very good for Lancaster. There are also in local records records of people being apprenticed to become potters in Lancaster. So there is uh, information there, but it isn't widely disseminated. But let's find out a little bit more about how the pottery and the people who worked there came to be in Lancaster. Delfbrayer production came first to the UK, uh, to Norwich, in the late 16th century. By the early 17th century, there were 10 potters operating in London on the River Thames. So popular in the 17th century, yeah, that production spread to to Bristol and then north to Liverpool by the early 18th century. And um, Dublin, Glasgow and Lancaster were all mid-18th century. So the object of exporting them was to the new world who needed pottery and had no potters. Yeah, so Lancaster comes late in in the history of Delphi yes. production in Britain and this sort of purpose-built pottery you know by people who are interested in investing in it and making profits from transatlantic mm. trade it's of a slightly different character to the earlier developments in that sense. Mm. Potters always moved around and still do mostly uh, in London and then as we said to Bristol and they just followed wherever there was a new pottery and the ones who came to Lancaster had previously worked in Liverpool. The techniques used in the pottery, and the potters themselves, weren't the only things that travelled to Lancaster from elsewhere. Matthew and Barbara explained that the raw materials and even some of the designs also came from distant places. There was a local redware, um, red earthenware source further downstream. The local red clay would be mixed with blue clay, which came from Carrickfergus. Yes, Carrickfergus in Northern Ireland. We excavated at the front of the building uh, a series of cellars with kind of hatches on them and we know from some of the surviving warehouses that they had these bays where you could deliver goods straight from the ship 
into the warehouses, basically. That's almost certainly happening with the clay that's coming from Northern Ireland. Mm-hmm. Certainly, most of the um, stuff for the glazes was imported. What seemed to be the most common design on the plates was this Oriental-inspired pagoda. Yes, mm-hmm. yeah, the pagoda pattern was the most frequently found and presumably the widest production. Then they were based on Oriental subjects. They were copying the chinoiserie of the time. We also get sort of flora and fauna which are inspired by the local surroundings of, of glass and marsh and sort of riverine birds. Mm. Uh, oh yes, yes. Um, it was very yeah. river-orientated, wasn't it? Painters or the apprentices had time off and they could, you know, having their lunch or whatever and watching fish and uh, all the things on on the river loon and they painted it. And of course they, they have the char dishes which have the fish on the outside. Mm. The, that food stuff is getting uh, marketed in dishes made specifically for that purpose. Barbara discovered that, well it seems likely that the the char dishes or fish depicted on vessels which were produced in Liverpool, they have their mouths closed. Oh and yes. The Lancaster yeah. ones all have their yeah. mouths open. Yes. It took me a little while to suss that. We got a bit more technical, asking Matthew and Barbara how the Delftware was actually made and fired. The key stages are cleaning and mixing the clay to a suitable consistency and part Carrick Fergus, part local clay. It was quite technical, but they were very, very good at it. One of the unique things about Delftware is that it's fired in two stages. First firing, and then we find in the waste heap what's called biscuit ware, and then they would have painted the wet tin glaze Mm -hmm. onto that and then painted their patterns directly onto the, the wet glaze and then fired a second time. Blue probably was the most that was used because it was, cobalt was easy to get. They also produced polychrome and nice floral designs and geometric mm. patterns using yellows and reds yeah. and greens but generally they're less reliable colours so the, the larger volume was produced with the, the blue and the, the purple colours. It was really down to the fireman. He was the main man in the uh, pottery Everything depended on him. It's essentially a square kiln with the firing chamber directly beneath the pottery. There's no evidence that there was an external Mm. firing chamber like we see on some contemporary illustrations. Mm. But we don't know a lot about the superstructure, whether or not it had a chimney. There was no evidence of a collapse of a chimney, but there are reconstruction Mm. drawings with and without chimneys. Some of these kilns uh, of the period were so tall that they were actually loading them from the first floor of the pot house. It makes me in awe of what they could do there without technical Uh, things we have now. The temperature of the kiln, it had to be raised and lowered gradually if there were increases if it increased to its maximum temperature or exceeded the the ideal temperature um, then the whole kiln load would be lost Mm -hmm. and we removed something like 30 tons of that by by lorry load um, to what was the archaeological headquarters at the time actually we're very glad that things did go wrong otherwise we wouldn't have found anything Uh, their bad news was our very good news before they left Matthew and Barbara explained a little bit more about the sort of products the pothouse was making, how that fitted into the economy of the time, and how the pothouse came to an end. Essentially they were producing utilitarian wares to go out to people who had need of Mm. affordable ceramic items in the colony, so lots of plates, lots of bowls, teapots, punch bowls with with little mottos on them, not a lot of sculpture or anything. Oh, no, no. We did have one little moulded 
figure. Not enough to indicate that they were producing that kind of thing on any scale. It was mainly utilitarian vessels. They were producing to send to people who had nothing. It was a new world. So they wanted plates, cups, <laughs> practical things. They weren't just sending things abroad. They were certainly patronising people in the north of England. I don't think they would go much further than that. Lancaster had an economic boom during this this time. The the 30 or so years from 1754 to about 1786 that pottery was functioning, it coincided with the, the height of Lancaster's involvement in transatlantic trade and also the, you know, the slave trade. Between the mid-1730s when the first slave ship left Lancaster and abolition in 1807, Lancaster's the fourth most important slaving town uh, in Britain behind Liverpool, Bristol and, and London. It, they were all part of the triangular trade, weren't they? The, from England to the booming North America, but they also went to South America and back again. And John Beekbane's son became a captain of those ships, so he was very uh, not involved in the pottery itself, but in distributing products. Yeah, so the the Delphi industry is just one example of local industries which are booming because of that Mm. increase in transatlantic trade. You've also got furniture makers who are using mahogany and pine and other woods which are coming in from the New World. You've also got things like sugar refining that's happening because the sugar's um, coming in. We know 1786 is when the chief shareholder, John Beekben, dies. And in his will, he says that you have to sell up my share in the pottery. We know that um, by 1796, the pothouse is bought up by a local shipbuilder who's going to turn it into 11 tenements. So we know that that's the end of the, the pottery's life. <laughs> it's probable that Lancaster, Delphware, or Delphware in general, was going to be getting outcompeted yes. at the time by it, um, by uh, Staffordshire and earthenware not, is produced by Josiah Wedgwood. Yes, earthenware, not yeah. Delphware, which um, were were cheaper and more durable. Yeah. Um, so it, it had its time. Also, you know, you got the end mm. of the, the slave trade is is coming. Delphware was um, very, I wouldn't say delicate, but it was easily chipped, and people once normal, what I call normal pottery, uh, started being made. They wanted that because it lasted longer. Thank you for joining us for this episode of 100 Years, 100 Objects. We hope you enjoyed it and please do listen to some of our other episodes where we'll be talking about everything from antlers to astronomical equipment.